have the right to health care that's being denied through this essentially enforced embargo on medical supplies and medical personnel. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. On Tuesday, May 15th, Gaza's health ministry reported that 62 Palestinians had been killed and almost 3,200 injured by Israeli forces in the territory since Monday, when Israeli forces opened fire on tens of thousands of Palestinians during the Great March of Return protest. A day of mourning was declared in the West Bank and Gaza on Tuesday as tens of thousands participated in funeral processions and offered condolences to grieving families in Gaza. As of Tuesday, more than 100 Palestinians, including 12 children, two journalists and a paramedic, had been killed during the Great March of Return protests held near Gaza's eastern boundary since March 30th. More than 12,600 Palestinians have been injured during the seven weeks of protests, most of them requiring hospitalization. One soldier has been reported injured, the only Israeli casualty during the protests. The paramedic who was among those killed on Monday, Musa Jabbar Abu Hassanein, had, about an hour before he was shot in the chest by an Israeli sniper, treated a Palestinian-Canadian doctor who was shot in the leg and knee. That doctor is Tarek Lubani, an emergency physician who lives in Ontario and is an associate professor at the, at the University of Western Ontario's medical school. Lubani has continued his work with Gaza-based physicians and designers to mitigate the overwhelming lack of basic medical supplies and electricity needed to operate hospitals and treat patients as Israel and Egypt continue the 11-year-old blockade against Gaza. He was in Gaza to join medical teams and test tourniquets that he helped design using open-source technology and 3D printers. We're now joined by Tarek Lubani from Gaza. And full disclosure, as your friend Tarek, I'm so glad you're okay and uh, so glad you're able to join us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you so much, Nora, for having me. So before we talk about what happened when you were shot, uh, let's talk about why you were there. We've known for a long time that Israel has used Gaza as a laboratory, a testing ground to try out new lethal weapons on a captive human population. Uh, these weapons, as, as we know, are then sold to other militaries and police forces around the world with the bonus of being battle-proven or field-tested. Uh, on the other side of that, part of your work in Gaza over the last few weeks has been to field-test basic medical supplies. Um, you've been working with physicians and makers in Gaza for years, trying to develop stethoscopes and tourniquets and other instruments that can be made using 3, 3D printers and then immediately used to treat patients in the field or in the operating room or uh, in triage in the ER because of the shocking shortages of basic supplies in Gaza. Tell us about your work with this project uh, and the current need to create tourniquets that medics can use in Gaza. What, what brought you to this project and to Gaza and how were these supplies being tested in the field? It's been quite a while that we've been uh, of the position that we need to make our own medical devices. We can't trust the Israelis to allow medical devices in, despite the fact that they shouldn't be blocked by the blockade. We can't trust the Egyptians to bring medical devices in, uh, despite the fact that they say that they're always happy to. And we simply are not able to buy them within the local market. Other companies just don't have the know-how and the talent to make high-quality devices. 
there are some very cheap, very poor quality generics around. As such, we started with a very small mechanical project, a stethoscope, very iconic of doctors. We proved it was just as good as a $300 stethoscope, uh, except for the fact that it costs only $2 for us to produce. And we started to distribute it to physicians in Canada and in Gaza. We flipped the model of medical development. Usually, these sorts of things are tested in the third world and sold in the first world. What we did was we tested in the first world uh, to make sure that the devices were good and then brought it into the third world, into the Gaza Strip, where we started to distribute it uh, and train people on how to use these stethoscopes. While we were increasing the abilities of the, the people in Gaza to use this particular technology, uh, there were a few of us in a project that we call GLIA who are doing this, it caught the attention of some people in the disaster committee who had finally completed a report on the 2014 war that showed that of the something like 2,500 deaths, I don't remember the exact number, so I'm sorry if I'm overstating it, uh, about half of them died because they bled to death, which in medicine is considered unnecessary. You should never bleed to death from your arms or your, le or your legs. Uh, if you're well cared for. And so we decided, well, they decided actually and came to our team and said, hey, can we make some tourniquets uh, using these 3D printers? The project was well received. It was simple. It was straightforward. It was cheap to implement. The only problem was we ran out of time. We started field testing in February and very, very quickly in February, I was here at the time, it became obvious people were going to march starting March 30th and it was going to be huge. As such, we knew that there'd be some armed Israeli suppression of these peaceful protests, and we knew that the tourniquets would be needed. We didn't want to go to production right then, but we had to. We thought that even an incomplete product was gonna be better than no product. And I'm happy to report that since we started, it's a two-part program, training people on how to stop bleeding and providing these 3D printed tourniquets. And since we started the program, nobody died because they bled from their arms or legs to death during the protests from March 30th until, unfortunately, May 14th, when quite a few people did die of those injuries. So we knew that the tourniquet worked, even though it had some problems. We went back to the drawing table, fixed these problems. That's why I was there on May the 11th to field test. That's why I was there on May the 14th to also field test and to, to deploy. Uh, I'm a very seasoned war doctor. I've worked in Iraq, Gaza Strip, the West Bank, South Lebanon, Colombia, Venezuela. I know what I'm doing around guns and I what I'm doing around people who want to shoot me with their guns. I know where to stand. I know where to be. And on this particular day, on the 14th, uh, basically we, we just could see very quickly that the Israelis were going to shoot a lot of people. We ran out of our supply of tourniquets very early in the morning. The protests were really officially starting at around 1 or 2 and yet by 10 o'clock in the morning, we'd run out of tourniquets. So I went to resupply. All we had left was eight of them. 
So I brought those back, distributed them. There was a low, no burning tires, no smoke, no tear gas, nobody messing around in front of the border or the buffer zone, that is. Uh, just a clearly marked medical team well away from everybody else. And unfortunately, that's when I got shot. Tarek, you were wearing uh, blue-green hospital scrubs, the, the people you were with. You, you said you were part of a, a medical team. You were clearly uh, identifiable as, as paramedics, as physicians. Um, and how close to the buffer zone were you? And, and, and you, you wrote about this in a post uh, for Medium. Talk, lay out the scene for us. Um, how close geographically were you to the snipers uh, just across the fence? And, and, and what happened when you were shot? There were three sniper posts, I think, uh, that I could see on the eastern border of, I guess, the buffer zone. We were set up like a triangle with the tip of the triangle pointing towards the Israeli soldiers being where the protesters were, and then 25 meters uh, to the west and 25 meters to the north was where the journalists were, and 25 meters to the west and 25 meters to the south of that point in the triangle was where uh, the, the medics were. There were about, uh, what, 15 of us at the very beginning. And we huddled there because we knew we would otherwise get in the crossfire. We were so far away that there was no way we were going to get shot accidentally or get caught in any kind of spray crossfire or anything like that. I mean, everybody there has heard more gunshots than any of us can probably imagine. I was the baby in gunshots of the group, and I consider myself seasoned. So, yeah, everybody was uh, quite experienced, and the environs made it such that it was very hard to believe that the sniper didn't know who he was targeting. Uh, what happened? How do you describe what it feels like being shot? I heard a bang on my right side. And then I just felt this incredible pain uh, that put me on my back. I was on the ground before I even really finished hearing the bang. Uh, I thought, what happened? And I thought, I've been shot. Actually, I think somebody else said, you've been shot. I don't remember. I yelled as loud as I could. And uh, the medics were right beside me. I mean, they started treating me immediately. My leg was bleeding. And the and uh, Musa, the paramedic who would later die, Musa Abu Hassanan, he looked at me and he says, Oh, Dr. Fawadit, do you want me to put a tourniquet on you? And I looked at my leg and I looked at the blood on the ground. And I knew, I mean, I knew I needed one. I knew if I were anywhere else, I'd get one. But I also knew we only had eight, one of which was in my back pocket. I said, no, bandage it, let's go. So they bandaged it, it blood like hell. And the bullet, can you describe uh, what kind of bullet was used and, and why uh, you told me yesterday when we were texting, uh, you said you were lucky? I don't know exactly what kind of bullet, but it was small and it was probably not moving at very high speed. We kind of divide bullets into high velocity and low velocity. And the bullet went basically just behind and down from my knee. 
on the left side. It missed just the bones, and it missed just what's called the neurovascular bundle, the nerves and the veins and the arteries that connect everything. If it hit that bundle, I would have ended up with an above-knee amputation, very, very common in these sorts of gunshot wounds. And then it went to the right knee and just missed my kneecap in front of my kneecap. So from the, tr- the way I was standing and the trajectory of the bullet, I know exactly where it came from. It came from the northernmost sniper post, most likely. And the policy of kneecapping uh, is increasingly common, um, not just in Gaza, but also against uh, Palestinians in the West Bank. Can you talk about what these injuries usually look like and, um, and, and, yeah, and what happens um, when, when someone is shot in the knee or, or in these bundles of nerves? I can't speak to what exactly the Israelis are thinking when they do this. However, the essence is that we have 60% of all of our traumas that are in the lower limbs. And not 60% of your body is in the lower limbs. In other parts of the world, uh, or when there's kind of random shooting, almost all of the shots are in the thorax, the stomach, the chest. These wounds usually, not usually, but very often can kill people. Uh, kneecapping won't really kill people, but it will maim them. And that's why some organizations have started asking the question, is this an organized Israeli policy with 60% of their shots hitting knee, hitting lower limbs, and almost 20% of their shots hitting upper limbs, and a very comparatively small number hitting the thorax, which is actually where you'd expect most of the fire to go. We're speaking with Dr. Tarek Lubani. He is uh, in the occupied Gaza Strip. Uh, Tarek, you you were attended to by Musa Abu Hasnain, who was shot and killed by an Israeli sniper just about an hour after you were shot. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Musa, how you worked together, and the circumstances around his killing by Israeli forces? Musa was about the same age as me, just a year younger than I was. Had kids. He was a good paramedic. He was a solid rescuer. Uh, He was just a stand-up guy. He used to wear these ridiculous goatees. Every time I'd see him, I'd just be like, what are you doing to your face? And when I saw him, when I got back to Gaza, he had grown this, like, little beard. I'm like, okay, fine. (laughs) Better than those ridiculous goatees. Uh, He was a trainer. He knew what he was doing, and he didn't have to be there, but he knew that there was such a shortage that he wanted to be on the scene helping. Um, he, we had sort of trained together. I'd worked with him before. He was good at his job. He was solid. An hour after uh, I was shot, there was a group of protesters who were pinned down by constant fire just north of where, we, where I was shot. And so Musa and six other rescuers followed the same protocol that we had been following all day. They slowly approached the scene with their hands up, clear, high visibility. There was no smoke, there was no tear gas, there were no burning tires. And uh, at some point, he got hit in the chest. Uh, It sounds like it was consistent fire, so it doesn't sound like it was uh, a sniper bullet as such. It sounds like it was just somebody spraying their rifle, but who knows. When he went down, all of the paramedics hit the, hit the deck, 
and they were able to get to cover behind uh, a rock, but they weren't able to get him to cover until things calmed down, which took about 20 minutes. They finally recovered him. They finally dragged him off the field, and by then it was too late. He died of a very preventable condition. Had I been there, I could have fixed it with a big pen. It's called a tension pneumothorax. So sorry. Um, Tarek, let's talk about what it looks like when the media retreats from the perimeter, when physicians in Gaza are dealing with the enormous influx of patients. Uh, we're talking more than 12,000 injured in the past seven weeks. What does recovery look like without regular electricity in the hospitals as a, as a basic fundamental? And, and how did hospitals and clinics triage this many people coming in with all the constraints? At a minimum, you recover from wounds using ice. There's, I should, ice would have helped my recovery tremendously. Where's the ice? Uh, and that's true for everybody in the hospitals too. There just is enough electricity to go freeze a bunch of ice for people. There also isn't enough electricity to make sure there's light all the time. And so people who are trying to get to the bathroom or people who are trying to get out of bed who are just able to ambulate end up falling and causing more serious complications. I think something close to 15 to 20, I don't remember the exact number of people, died because they couldn't receive timely care like surgeries uh, while they were waiting because things were so flooded. So it's a terrible situation. I mean, we would not be able to tolerate it in Canada. You would not be able to tolerate it in the United States. It should not be tolerated here. Uh, the Palestinians definitely have a right to health care that's being denied through this essentially enforced embargo on medical supplies and medical personnel. Tarek, uh, we've talked on this podcast before, years ago, about the lack of medicines that hospitals in Gaza are dealing with. What medications would you normally be working with in Ontario uh, that aren't available in Gaza, and, and how do physicians improvise? Usually, there's a list of about 50% essential medications stocked out, unavailable. However, now, that is almost 100%. There is not enough medications for anything. The medications, the only medications I took for my gunshot wound, and your medical listeners will appreciate this, was Tylenol and Advil. And I brought them with me from Canada. They're not even available. When I went looking for a crutch, uh, firstly, you can't buy a pair of crutches because there just aren't enough crutches in the country. And we had to pull favors to get me a crutch. I mean, it's, it's everything. Everything is short because even a well-designed well-funded, well-run system doesn't have the resources to deal with 2,700 gunshot wounds, or sorry, 700 wounded, which of which I think 15 or 1,600 were gunshot wounds in one day. So that's just not, that's not something anyone can deal with, let alone a place that is already creaking to its breaking point. How can you assess the level of rehabilitation that will be needed for this many injured people? And, and you know, how is rehab even possible under these conditions? Uh, I was sent home within an hour of being seen. I was told, good luck. 
in Canada, I'd have gotten a surgery. I'd have stayed in hospital. I'd have gotten lots of different kinds of antibiotics. Here I managed to get some antibiotics. And uh, I'm just going to wait and see if I get infected in a few days. Deal with it then. It's so unacceptable. It's not just unacceptable for me. It's unacceptable for all my patients who are in this situation. I'm frankly luckier than every other patient who's in this situation. I think very few people were as lucky as me to be shot in a place that missed uh, the worst parts of, of the knee. And so if they have worse injuries and higher rates of infection and aren't able to have surgeries, I mean, these are not doctors sitting at home who know exactly what to do. I am. Uh, I, I, really, I really fear for the next stages of trauma. You know, there's stage one is how many people die in minutes to hours. Stage two is how many people die in days to weeks. And stage three after that is how many people die in weeks to months. And usually if you deal well with trauma, they all die in stage one. But here it's pretty clear that there's going to be a lot of mortality and morbidity in the later stages of trauma, which should never happen. Tarek, um, are you planning to continue treating patients, uh, even though you're going through your own rehabilitation? I can't right now. I can't be on the field. It's too rugged. Uh, there's bug fire. There's gas canisters. You have to run. You have to jump. You have to drag people. You have to pull people. It's rugged. I can't be on the field. If I can get up, if I can just even stand in one spot for long enough, maybe I can be in the emergency. But right now, I'm I'm off. I, I can't really do much of anything. Well, finally, um, tell us how people can learn more about the GLIA project of using um, open source technology to, to 3D print supplies that people need in Gaza, and, and how can people get involved? Probably the best way to read about it now uh, would be a link to your page, if that's possible, or uh, just doing a web search for open source tourniquet. Uh, or a 3D printed tourniquet. You'll see our work. You'll be able to read our field trials. Help us. We're not the most amazing engineers or the most amazing doctors. We're just people who are trying to make things better. And we know we made it open source because we wanted the community to participate. Everything we do is not just for us. It's for everybody who comes after us. Uh, with the normal way of developing you know, we always say we stand on the shoulders of giants, but with open source, when we work together, we build the giants on whose shoulders we stand. We're going to leave it right there. That's Tarek Lubani. He's an emergency physician um, from Ontario, Canada, currently in the Gaza Strip. He's also an associate professor at the University of Western Ontario's medical school. Tarek, please be safe. Uh, I'm so glad you're okay. And uh We'll talk to you very soon. Thanks for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nora. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net. 
where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>